Psalm 55. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me and I'm distraught because of what my enemy is saying. Because the threats of the wicked, for they bring down suffering on me and assail me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and storm. Lord, confuse the wicked, confound their words, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshippers. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead, for evil finds lodging among them. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening and morning and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, he will hear them and humble them, because they have no fear of God. My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is as smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. But you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out half their days. But as for me, I trust in you. Peter, thank you so much uh, for reading for us this evening. Before we start, let's pray. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 143, we read this. The psalmist writes, Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. Uh, So, Father, we thank you so much uh, for the richness of your word. I pray that as we come to your word this evening, that you would be deeply at work in our hearts. For those of us for whom betrayal is a raw and painful wound, Uh, Please would you apply the healing balm of your word to broken and hurting hearts. And for all of us, ready our hearts and minds to receive your word. Change us and shape us to be more like your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. It'd be a great help to me if you're able to uh, to follow along. And we've been looking uh, through a handful of the Psalms of Lament uh, over the last few Sundays. And as we've said in uh, previous uh, sessions, that uh, we're doing this really to 
encourage uh, ourselves. And it might seem a bit odd uh, to say that we're seeking encouragement uh, as we work our way through the Psalms of Lament to listen to the psalmist cry out uh, his anguish, his trials and woes. Uh, But it is uh, a great encouragement because uh, we know, don't we, that as we journey through life, Uh, that we find that just because we're Christians, it doesn't mean that we're immune uh, from the trials of the world. Sickness, bereavement, uh, broken relationships, uh, career reversals or harm still come to us. And as Christians, we need to have our eyes open, ready uh, for it. Uh, The theologian uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, talks of life in terms of orientation and disorientation. That orientation is a time when the experiences that we have of life foot or seem to accord with the way that we think that life should go. And then we find ourselves in times of disorientation, when we find ourselves in a season of trial uh, or trauma uh, that wasn't expected. And it's so great that it threatens to completely overwhelm us. And we start in those seasons of disorientation to trust God less. Uh, He says, um, Walter Brueggemann, that is, says that there's a danger uh, for many churches uh, because all they will preach about is the season of orientation. That is, God is good uh, and that your life will always go well. That denying hardships uh, seems to be, for some, a way of increasing faith. Uh, But it doesn't. It just weakens it. It's by journeying through the darkness with the Psalms of Lament that yield life. Listen to what Walter Brueggemann says. Uh, It's no wonder that the church has intuitively avoided these Psalms, the Psalms of Lament. They lead us into dangerous acknowledgement of how life really is. They lead us into the presence of God where everything is not polite and civil. They cause us to think unthinkable thoughts and to utter unutterable words in our modern experience in a successful and affluent culture it's believed that enough power and knowledge can tame terror and eliminate the darkness a religion of orientation fundamentally operates on that basis but our honest experience both personal and public attests to the resilience of the darkness in spite of us The remarkable thing about Israel is that it did not banish or deny the darkness from its religious enterprise. It embraces the darkness as the very stuff of new life. Indeed, Israel seems to know that new life is rooted nowhere else. The Psalms of Lament are essential equipment for the Christian. Psalms that speak of the pain of life's experiences. Psalms that give us the words so that we can clothe and articulate the journey that we're going through. The ways that we can express uh, those complaints to God in the most honest of ways. God isn't asking us to grin and to bear it, to deny the darkness. No, he's asking us to openly come to him honestly in the darkness. And each of the Psalms of Lament, we find uh, a hope that pulls us through our season of trial. Uh, The Psalms of Lament are given as a gift to us to help equip us through the journey of life, that we will finish the race well. 
And so this evening we're looking at Psalm 55, where the lament, the complaint of the psalmist is that he has been betrayed by someone very close to him. And as we journey through the psalm, I'd like to lift out three things. Firstly, the fear of the people around, that's in verses 1 through 11. Uh, The fury towards the betrayer, that's in verses 12 to 15. And then faith in the one who carries us. So fear, fury, faith. So firstly, fear of the people around, verses 1 to 11. David, as he writes this psalm, uh, tells us uh, right away how he's feeling. There's a rawness and there's an openness as he comes to speak to God. Let's pick up the psalm from the second half of verse 2 through to verse 6. David writes this. My thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught, because of what my enemy is saying, because of the threats of the wicked. For they bring down suffering on me, and assail me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. He uses, doesn't he, the most vivid of word pictures. Uh, He paints with words just how he's feeling. His feelings aren't to be denied or suppressed, but they're to be engaged with, to be brought into the light. And so in verse 3, take a look with me, we see that uh, there are people that are arrayed against David. These people are wicked, and they're pouring out threats against David. Uh, The word threats there uh, quite literally is speaking of persecution. David is feeling persecution. And these aren't just idle words. This isn't just him uh, with a bout of paranoia, uh, idle words spoken in a dark corner somewhere. Uh, these are words of malice that are spoken as a forerunner to real violence. Uh, the enemy is not only persecuting David because they're wicked, but because they're angry. There is a deep-rooted anger that now explodes out as they persecute David. And how does he feel? Uh, Take a look with me. As David's going on, uh, he tells us that he's distraught uh, in verse 2. And then in verse 4, he tells us that his heart is in anguish and the terrors of death have fallen upon him. The sense of crippling uh, crippling anxiety and nausea uh, at the implication of the threats that the enemies weigh upon David. And in verse 5, he tells us that he's simply overwhelmed by fear and horror. The fight or fight, fight or flight reflex seems to be on all the time, making his heart pound in his chest, adrenaline course through his arteries, and his heart feels like it's ready to explode. You can imagine the dry mouth, the waves of nausea, and the clammy skin, the paralyzing panic that roots him and maybe us to the spot as we feel hemmed in. The walls around are closing in. The utter exhaustion of being too tired to sleep. And in verse 9 through 11, take a look with me. Uh, We're told that this isn't a figment of David's imagination. It's there for anyone to see. There's violence in the streets all around the city on its walls. People are prowling and the threats and lies just never leave the streets. David is feeling the relentless, constant, never-ceasing pressure and terror of his enemies. It just goes on and on and on. 
Now, the trials he faces are so great. Take a look at what he thinks his remedy should be in verses 6 to 8. He can think of only one thing to do. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and the storm. David's response is just to run away, to flee, to go far away. And he says that even if he goes to the desert places, you know, where there's nothing of interest, no beauty, it's a place where it's difficult to survive and where death comes quickly. He says, I'd prefer that place to the place that I'm in at the moment. Can you see the, the deep distress and anguish that David's in? Can you feel how much pain he's articulating to God? And perhaps we ourselves can think back to times when we feel or have felt hard-pressed on every side. And I wonder, in those situations, what was your first instinct? Was it the same as David's, I wonder? Take a look at verse 1. He says, listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. The first thing that David does is he brings how he feels to God. In the midst of this crushing trouble with his enemies on every side and his world falling apart, he comes to God with all of his anxieties and all of his troubles. He hides absolutely nothing from God. He knows that God knows all of his troubles, but the act of prayer, the act of articulating these trials allows David to process and then present how he feels. He's not sugarcoating it at all for God. It's honest. He's acknowledging to himself and to God how he really, really feels. And there's an urgency, isn't there? There's a a profound longing for God to meet with him. He says, you know, do not ignore my plea. It, It isn't simply sending up a flare and thinking, that's it. No, he wants to know God with him. Uh, When reflecting on how God's people should behave in this sort of season of trial, uh, this is what Spurgeon says. He says, they run as naturally to the mercy seat in time of trouble as the little chickens to the hen in the hour of danger. But note well that it is never the bare act of prayer which satisfies the godly. They crave an audience with heaven and an answer from the throne and nothing else will content them. Hide not thyself from my supplication. Do not stop thine ear or restrain thy hand. When a man saw his neighbor in distress and deliberately passed him by, he was said to ignore his plea. And the psalmist here begs that the Lord would not so treat him. And so for us, if we find ourselves hard-pressed on every side... Follow David's lead. Come to the Lord in prayer. And we know that when we're in a really tight spot, oftentimes the desire to spend time in prayer can become weak or maybe even non-existent. As we try to rely on our own strength and our own ingenuity to try to fix our problems and our appetite for prayer evaporates. But David reminds us that the thing that we need most, the first thing that we need, is to come before God in the expectation of meeting with God as he speaks to us in prayer. 
And David's encouragement to us is to do that as well. And to do it with real urgency and to do it with great expectancy. So if that's how David's feeling, we have to ask why. What's happening to cause him to feel like that? And that brings us to our second point, the fury. And this is the longest of my three points. So when the clock keeps going and you're thinking he's got three points to get through, fear not. This is the longest of the points. So secondly, uh, the fury towards the betrayer, verses 12 through 15. Uh, So why is David feeling the way that he is? Sadly, uh, we don't know exactly which events uh, or event prompted the writing of this psalm. But we do know that David was betrayed by people very close to him at various times. Uh, Perhaps of all the betrayals... Uh, that David had, perhaps the betrayal by his son Absalom was the sharpest. Absalom murdered his, Absalom, David's son, murdered his brother for raping his sister. Let me say that again. David's son Absalom murdered his brother Amnon for raping his sister. And we can only imagine what that must have done to David. But incredibly, David brought eventually Absalom back into the family, first with clear boundaries and then later with a kiss. But Absalom rewarded David's patience, his kindness and his forgiveness with utter contempt and brazen betrayal. Absalom, he sought to overthrow David and become king himself. He slandered his reputation. He lied to his father's face. His rebellion caused David to go into hiding for fear of his life. And Absalom's betrayal caused a battle where 20,000 men lost their lives. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapters 14 through 18. It's a staggering betrayal to be wounded by your own child in that way. And David's response to such a betrayal is one of fury. Uh, Read with me verses 12 through 15. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I I could hide. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my closest friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshippers. The pain's absolutely palpable, isn't it? David's saying that if it was his enemies that were at work against him, he could endure it. But what's completely gutted him is that the one who's betrayed him is the one who was closest to him. In verse 13, one who was like him, David's companion, his friend, a close friend. This is the one whom David delighted in worshipping with where the fellowship was sweet. This is a bosom buddy, a, a bosom buddy. It's a second language. Work with me. Someone who was closer than a brother. Someone who shared the laughter and shared the pain. A dear companion. The one who is behind the violence, the strife, the overwhelming terror. And the horror that he experiences, the persecution that he faces, this one is his closest friend. And how does he respond? Take a look at verse 15. Let death 
take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead, for evil finds lodging among them. His response in verse 15, his prayer is that he wishes that they and his enemies would be carried off to hell. To go down alive to the realm of the dead. David's prayer is that God's judgment would come and that God would carry his enemies off to hell. That's David's prayer. The prayer of Israel's most revered earthly king. That his enemies would be carried off to hell. Now, it's unlikely that any of us here tonight have had cause to send tens of thousands of people into battle to recover a territory or a kingdom that our son wanted to remove from us. Uh, But there may be, there may be some of us, maybe all of us in some way that have experienced the bitter truth of being utterly betrayed by someone that we love. There'll be some here tonight for whom the context of the psalm may not be directly relatable, but the pain that David speaks of speaks straight into your heart. Uh, Perhaps it's the betrayal of a spouse who breaks the matrimonial pledge of faithfulness, the husband who gossips about his wife's weakness, the grown-up son who walks away from the faith, The mother who relentlessly demands excellence from her children and then pointedly condemns everything that they do. The friend who abandons you just when you need them the most. The business partner who steals from the company and ruins it. And through the betrayal, it feels like our whole world has been turned upside down and inside out. We find ourselves pulled out of orientation And thrust like a rag doll into a vortex of disorientation. Our friends, our family become divided. Some supporting us and others not. And all of a sudden we find ourselves, don't we, in Psalm 55 verses 2 through 11. We lose our footing. We're overwhelmed by horror. And our lives are filled with fear fear of what people will think fear of telling people fear of people finding out fear of what my betrayer will do next fear of how I cope in the betrayal fear of not knowing if I can trust anyone anymore fear of staying where I am and fear of running away betrayal swamps us in fear And following the fear, there comes anger. Anger with God. How could he let that happen? Anger at ourselves. How could I have been so blind? Why didn't I see that coming? Anger at our betrayers. After all I've done for you. Anger at our enemies. We want them to pay for what they've done. Anger that it just isn't fair. It just isn't fair and all of a sudden we find ourselves in Psalm 55 verses 12 through 15 and the danger is that we can enter an endless cycle 
of fear, verses 2 through 11, and fury, 12 through 15. Fear, then fury. Feeding fear, then fury. Feeding fear, and then fury. A never-ending spiral of distress. A cycle that has as its fuel the gross injustice, the betrayal that's been committed, the profound sense uh, that we have been wronged, the need for justice. Uh, Like a balloon that gets a puff of air into it every time you cycle through fear and fury, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And as it does we find ourselves being hollowed out cycle by cycle by cycle. We're being made smaller and smaller. And every time we cycle through fear and fury, there's a danger that we'll get locked into a desire to see trouble fall on the one who betrayed us so bitterly. Then we we replay the tapes again and again of how they betrayed us in our minds over and over. And that fuels our desire for justice. Perhaps we dream of the ways that uh, they might themselves one day be betrayed. When we hear that something bad has happened to them, well, that just makes us feel a little bit better. When we have an opportunity to slice their reputation, we take it. We run them down in conversation. I wonder if, if we've done any of these things ourselves. Because underneath that cycle of fear and fury, fear and fury, is the belief that God let this terrible betrayal happen to me. And therefore, I have to seek justice for myself. If God had kept his eye on the ball, then this wouldn't have happened God got this wrong, it's up to me to fix it. The fury we feel just gets bigger and bigger and we get smaller and smaller. But amazingly, David breaks that cycle and we can too through verse 15. The prayer of God sending his enemies to hell amazingly helps us. It helped David break that cycle too. That prayer allows David to move from disorientation to reorientation. And it will help us too. So let me unpack that for us. Uh, As I said, uh, underneath the cycle of fear and fury uh, is a belief that God ultimately won't judge. A belief that in some way that God, God is either not willing, not able... Or simply doesn't care about justice. That God won't put all things right. That if ultimately justice is to be done by God. Then if he's not going to do it. Then it's down to us. We have to exact justice ourselves. But God as he's revealed himself in scripture. Cares passionately about justice. He is the one who is truly holy, holy, holy. The one through which the Lord Jesus will come again and he will judge the living and the dead. 
the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone will give an account and nothing will be overlooked. The truth of God's ultimate judgment and therefore the truth of hell is what allows David and will allow us to break that cycle of fear and fury because he realizes the ultimate judgment belongs to God. And the more that we can see that, believe it and trust it, the anger that boils up inside us as a result of the betrayal will be drained away. The more that we can trust in God's judgment, the less anger we will have. We'll be able to handle and hand more and more of that pain over to God. Trusting in divine vengeance drains away our desire to execute our own vengeance. And as we pass the pain and anger of betrayal over to God, we're able to emerge out of the darkness. We will be changed by the journey we've been on. We'll emerge out of the darkness from disorientation to reorientation and we'll be changed. Uh, Miroslav Volf is a modern day theologian who's based in Yale. Uh, He grew up in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, In his late 30s, he witnessed uh, the most savage of civil wars in his own country. People who grew up together, whose communities had existed happily side by side for generations, were suddenly plunged into civil war. There were the most horrendous betrayals seen in modern times in Europe. Uh, This cycle of fear and fury sprung up between different groups. The country that Miroslav Volf grew up in uh, was torn to pieces. And at the time of the Civil War, uh, he was told that if the violence was to stop, people needed to believe in a God of love and not in a God of judgment. A God of love, not of vengeance, they said. That is the only way to break the cycle of fear and fury. That a God of love who didn't judge was the only way that people would be encouraged to lay down their arms. And it was argued that that was the only way to break the cycle. Miroslav Volf completely disagreed. He thought, and I I believe he's right, uh, that when you stand in the rubble of life, the view that there's a benevolent God of love is not going to break the cycle of fear and fury. And he gave a lecture in that war zone. And this is what he said. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who's inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is what he was doing. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since 
God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. As one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about the many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. He's saying that when you have experienced such betrayal, if, you, if there isn't a God who at the end of time is going to put all things right, if there isn't a God at the end of time who is going to make everyone accountable, if there isn't a God at the end of time for whom justice matters, then you have no option in this life now but to pick up arms and go out and seek to exact justice yourself. Miroslav Wolf is right. He says that if there is a God at the end of time who is going to put everything right, then we now can allow him to be the God who will put everything right. We can hand everything over to him. We can break the cycle of fear and fury as we journey through verse 15. Now that's what David does. That's what David realized. He hands all of that judgment over to God. He's trusting in God's ultimate judgment. In verse 15, he states that, doesn't he? He's, he trusts God's judgment. He's leaving his betrayers to God. And so because of verse 15, trusting in the judgment of God, David can break the cycle of fear and fury. And so can we and move to faith in the one who carries us. We need that same truth to be at work in our hearts. If we've been betrayed, the first part of healing has to be a journey through verses 12 through 11 to take our pain to God, to acknowledge in all honesty what we're feeling and then to hand that pain in all of its fullness over to God, to trust that God will ensure a full account is given on that last day. That's what allows you to break out of the cycle of fear and fury, to move from disorientation to orientation. And that will also allow you to move forward to be in a place where you can forgive the person who's betrayed you. Forgiving doesn't mean that you're condoning. It doesn't mean that you're accepting. It doesn't mean that you're allowing the betrayer to blame you. But it's only once you've forgiven can restoration come. And for there to be restoration of the relationship, there must be repentance and there must be remorse. The betrayer must be truly sad for the wrong that they've done and eagerly seek a restoration. Now, it's a painful topic, I'm sure, for many of us. And if that's you, uh, please do grab me after the service. Um, or grab Colin. Uh, we'd love to, to pray with you. Now, that might sound all very straightforward, uh, but for those of us uh, who have been wronged, really wronged, how do we get the power to break that cycle? We, I mean, we can't just summon up the strength to do it. What we need is that we need to see that God knows our pain. Our hearts need to see that God, too, has experienced profound betrayal. 
You see, God looked down at humanity and he set his love on us. In love, he sent his only son to rescue us. In Jesus, he came and he lived the life that we should have lived. Perfectly loving God, perfectly loving his neighbor. And he lived in close fellowship with 12 of his disciples, sharing his life with them. But in the end, he was betrayed by one of the 12, one of his closest friends who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. When Jesus most needed his three closest disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying in his hour of need, they slept rather than worrying about Jesus' plight. When the mob came for Jesus, his friends just ran into the darkness. And possibly Jesus' closest friend, Peter, betrayed him, denied him to a servant girl. Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed by those who are closest to you. But remarkably, rather than God promising that the betrayers of Jesus would experience judgment for betraying his son, as we might have expected from verse 15, it's Jesus who was sent down alive to the realm of the dead. We need to see that God himself was betrayed, and not just by people 2,000 years ago in a country 2,000 miles away. He's been betrayed by us as we too have denied him, as we've been ashamed of him, as we've taken his good things and then we've distanced ourselves from him. We too have betrayed God. And we need to see that Jesus took the judgment that our betrayal deserved. And in an amazing exchange, we, you and I, we're welcomed in into God's family as children to enjoy that sweet fellowship with God because Jesus was cast out. And we need to meditate and to reflect on that truth that our betrayal of God could only be, give, be forgiven through the death of God's only Son. Our betrayal deserved the vengeance of God, but that was paid for by Christ. And the more that we can see our betrayal against God being forgiven, the more that we'll be able to allow the betrayals that we've experienced not capture us. The gospel is the balm that our betrayed hearts need. So finally, and briefly, having moved from fear and fury, we can move to faith in the one who carries us through trials. In verse 16, uh, David makes a decision. He says, as for me, he says, as for me, he's, tr- he's decided that he's going to trust God to deal with his betrayers and his enemies. He leans into knowing the character of God. He turns his attention away from his fears towards God. Even though David doesn't understand why the trouble has come, he trusts that God is in control. David knows that the one true God is a living God. So in verse 16 and 17, take a look. He says that he calls to God and that God hears him. He calls because he knows that God is just and that he will save him. We see that in verse 16. And in verse 18, that God will rescue him. And in verse 18, he says that he knows that this is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. 
as he says that God is enthroned from of old. He is unchanging. The revelation of who God is given to us in scripture in times of old is still the God that we know today. And that means that we can trust him. And those are the words that David uses to close the psalm. And in verse 22, he gives us the antidote to fear and to fury. Take a look with me at verse 15. Sorry, in verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Uh, The psalmist is realistic. We will have cares and they may be beyond our strength to carry. You may be tempted to return back to verse 2 and re-enter that cycle of fear and fury. And this is the truth. Verse 22 is the truth that you need not to do that. It's by casting your fears on the Lord. God tells us that rather than carry them alone, we should cast them onto the Lord. He will bear them. He will carry them. He will sustain you. And as we, as a fellowship of believers, we're part of that for one another. We can be the answers to the prayers of those around us. Uh, If you know someone who's going through a season of trial, particularly a season of betrayal, uh, are you able uh, to walk with them? Are you able to be a listening ear? Are you able to remind them that God hasn't forgotten them? And when our brothers and sisters find themselves in a season of disorientation, are we willing through Christian fellowship to allow God to use us to help them move to orientation? And if we are disorientated by the trials of life, then do as the psalmist recommends. Cast your cares on the Lord. Don't withdraw from God. Don't withdraw from fellowship. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who heals. Father, I pray uh, this evening for those who are caught in the spiral of fear and fury. Uh, Maybe for those uh, here who may have been caught in that cycle for many years. Father, I pray for those of us who are caught in that cycle, reveal to us a way out of the darkness. Give us the strength to meditate and reflect on verse 15. Give us the courage to pray honestly and boldly. Grant us the uh, endurance and the certainty that we need to trust in your eternal judgments. And give us the wisdom to cast our cares upon you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.